weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 29th, 2008. I'm Leslie Taylor. Chocolate. There's nothing quite like it. The process of manufacturing high-quality chocolate is an art form practiced by only a handful of companies in the U.S., including ADM Cocoa, Barry Calibo, USA, the Blommer Chocolate Company, Cargill Cocoa and Chocolate, Guitar Chocolate Company, the Hershey Company, Mars Snack Food U.S., Nestle Chocolate and Confections, and the World's Finest Chocolate. In this lecture, given the day before Valentine's Day at the New York Academy of Sciences, Jeffrey Blumberg, a nutrition scientist in the USDA Gene Mayer Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging and the Freeman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University, offered a historic view of chocolate and an overview of current research giving evidence for the many health benefits of chocolate. The lecture, which was followed by a chocolate tasting and a reception, was the second in the four-part Science in the City food series. For information about attending the upcoming Science of Champagne and Science of Scotch events, please visit the Science and the City website. Thank you for turning out on an otherwise uh, not-too-beautiful evening. I would like to thank the Academy as well as the uh, Science in the City program uh, for sponsoring this and the Chocolate Manufacturers Association for co-sponsoring the evening. Um, I do realize that my talk is the prelude that you're really just waiting to get through so you can have that chocolate tasting afterwards. So bear with me a little bit. I'm going to try to take you on a very quick tour from the cacao orchard to chocolate and health. Chocolate and health. This is not a bit out of Woody Allen's sleeper as we talk about um, how chocolate can be good for you. But I would point out that things are changing a little bit. And this comes from a, a patient handout from a magazine called Advanced for Healthy Aging. And it talks about a number of different foods that are back in the good graces of nutrition science. So these outlaw foods now are regaining favor as healthy choices. I mean, we all know that eggs have been demonized because they're a source of dietary cholesterol. It took a little time for people to appreciate that dietary cholesterol really doesn't lead to serum cholesterol. That's saturated fat that does that. And eggs turn out to be a really good source of vitamin D and the carotenoid lutein and very high-quality protein. Coffee, if you remember, some of the early studies caused pancreatic cancer, bladder cancer, hypertension, and other heart diseases. Not. None of those early observational studies proved out to be true, but coffee is a very good source of chlorogenic acid, a phenolic acid that has very potent antioxidant properties. We're not so sure about all the good things it may be doing for you, but it certainly doesn't do any harm. And then there are, there are nuts, um, which, as we know, are loaded with, with fat and make you obese, except that they're really loaded with monounsaturated and polyunsaturated good fats, lots of vitamin E. People who eat a lot of nuts are actually leaner than people who do not. Um, and now even the FDA has a qualified health claim that says if you eat one and a half ounces of nuts a day, you'll reduce your risk for heart disease. So that brings me to chocolate. And I'm going to start out with just a little bit of this very antique food. Um, 3,000 years of, of history, 
starting in Mesoamerica, what we now call modern Central America, parts of Mexico and the northern parts of South America, are the Mesoamerican people, the Olmec, the Mayans, uh, the Aztec, um, had lots of innovations, but one of them was the cultivation, the domestication, and the processing of cacao from, that is, the pods that you've seen outside, from Theobromo cacao, which literally translated uh, from the Latin means food of the gods. In particular, the god they're talking about is this feathered serpent that you see in this little picture up here, whose name I actually can't pronounce. But the, the picture I'm showing you of this bodega brown bottle came from Puerto Escondido um, in Honduras, um, and through radiocarbon dating um, was found to uh, come from somewhere between 1100 and 1400 B.C. And one of the things that scientists have done, and actually did just last year, was scrape the inside residues from pots like this and a few mates of it, um, and they discovered using liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry traces of theobromin. And in this part of the world, the only source of theobromine, which actually has no bromine, and it actually comes from this theobroma, is a marker of a chocolate uh, food. And they dated this because of the radiocarbon back to this period of 1100 to uh, 1400 BC. And if you're a, a food anthropologist, you're pretty excited because this is 500 years earlier than any other previous reports of um, of chocolate um, being used as a beverage, which is how it was used. And this chocolate drink um, was used in every social and ritual occasion of the Mayan and Aztec people. So just a little bit more updating that history. We'll jump forward about 900 years <clears throat> when Hernan Cortez um, met with Montezuma and as would be the case when royalty meets somebody strange from somewhere else, um, was served uh, this uh, cocoa beverage, which um, uh, about 10 years later he brought to Spain, where it stayed with the royal family and the elite of Spanish society. But it sort of caught on, became more of a popular drink, um, and then later was introduced in the next 100 years. Um, to Italy and Holland, finally moved over to um, England, and then in 1659, chocolate drinks uh, were introduced um, to France. Now, the first chocolate factory in the United States was established in 1765, um, and then it wasn't until 1819 that the first commercial eating chocolate was developed. Chocolate had always been a drink, um, up until about this time, and the Swiss were the first to do this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and then a little later, 1828, we get the first commercial chocolate candy coming out of Holland. 1828, cocoa powder was invented. We get the first milk chocolate bar in 1875. And in 1904, just over 100 years ago, we really begin to see um, in history this mass production of chocolate candy. So that's a little bit of the history. I want to just tell you a little bit about um, how chocolate is made. Um, and we start out um, with these 
pods from the cacao tree, um, and I saw several on some of the, the tables outside, and it looks like this. They come in all sorts of varieties and, and colors, and when you open it up, you see the segmented pulp. Inside that are the seeds or the beans, if you will. The first step in making chocolate is to um, dry and ferment these beans. This is what they, they look like, and this is how the, they'll be spread out um, to dry. Um, they're then blended. Uh, these different varieties are, are blended. Then they are um, cleaned, and the shells around the bean are cracked um, to produce um, nibs. Is what they're called. It's really the, the center or the meat of the bean. Um, you can then roast these nibs and you grind them up to get um, what, at least in the industry, is called chocolate liquor. Um, but you may know it more as baking chocolate or unsweetened chocolate that's then pressed into a cake, um, which extrudes uh, cocoa butter. Um, and then finally, um, you can grind, cool, and temper um, this product to a cocoa powder. So that's the ingredients, and now how do we make chocolate? Really only four principal ingredients, um, most starting, two of them, starting from the uh, uh, Theobroma cacao, the cocoa butter, which I told you was expressed from that cake, the chocolate liquor, um, and then sugar is added um, for reasons I'll tell you about, but mostly it's because there's some very bitter-tasting substances in the chocolate, and um, especially if you're going to make milk chocolate, you add milk, you blend and mix, you refine, and then you conch. And if you saw some of the pictures that were um, in uh, cycling through before the, the talk, you saw the conch machines. Um, they're really agitators and mixers. Um, it's a very important invention in chocolate because this polished the particles, and those first eating chocolate candies were really quite gritty. So those Victorians that liked it, didn't like it that much. It was until someone discovered this conching process that you really had a smooth chocolate. Um, that's then tempered, and you get your three basic um, chocolate um, ingredients for bars and chips, big blocks, and bulk uh, liquid. Okay, that's my introduction. And now I really want to talk to you about um, what we're learning about the role of chocolate in promoting health. Um, this is really a remarkably new area, and I think one of the things it shows is how incredibly rapidly accelerating is our knowledge about food. And so maybe some of that Woody Allen sleeper business that I talked about a bit it wasn't so much an exaggeration, but some of the inappropriate myths that we had developed about what food was good and what food was bad, now that science is really starting to ask questions about that, we're getting much more factually based answers. Um, back in the 1940s, some clinicians visited uh, the, the Kuna Amarins uh, of San Blas Archipelago. These are islands just on the Caribbean coast of Panama. Um, and what they found was that there was um, very little hypertension um, and uh, in this population. Kuna Indians have lived on San Blas for over 500 years. Um, this, this group started living there back when the Spanish conquistadors um, first came to uh, Mesoamerica. And what we know, because really it's just normal physiology, as you grow older, there are slight increases in your blood pressure. We all know that. 
But there was this odd group um, in these kuna that didn't seem to have that effect. And about 50 years later, in the early 1990s, a clinician, Norman Hollenberg from Harvard University, was very interested in finding out what genes um, protected us from hypertension and where, what, what were the bad genes that made people get hypertension. And obviously, this was a good cohort to go to because they must really have those good genes. It protects them against increasing blood pressure as they grow older. Um, but he actually couldn't find any difference in their genes. And in fact, um, in doing a little bit of migration epidemiology, that's following the migration of people, correlating that with changes in their patterns of chronic disease. You may know more famous examples, uh, for instance, when Japanese from Japan migrate to Hawaii, and then they migrate from Hawaii to California, their pattern of chronic disease changes. It changes from, um, for example, very low incidence of heart disease, very low incidence of colorectal cancer, high incidence of stomach cancer, though. But as they go to Hawaii and then they go to California, actually they start getting heart disease, they start getting colorectal cancer. It's not genes. It's the environment. And specifically, um, it's their diet. And that's exactly what Hollenberg started to find, um, is that when these Kuna Indians moved from uh, the San Blas Islands onto the mainland, um, they started showing age-related increases in blood pressure. Their incidence of hypertension went from about a couple percent um, to 30 to 40 percent, which is actually pretty common. It's what we see in the U.S. as well. They did very thorough records of their diet. And the one thing these Kuna Indians did that they didn't do on the mainland is they stuck to their traditional diet, which, by the way, is very high in salt, had lots of seafood, though. Um, but they also drank a traditional coca beverage. In fact, they drank about five cups a day, at least. And for many of them, it's the only water they, drinking water they, they actually had. So there's this enormous intake of this coca beverage. They moved to the mainland. They stopped drinking their um, uh, traditional beverage, and they start getting hypertension. Well. What's going on? That's a pretty interesting um, observation. So people started doing analyses of uh, chocolate and cocoa, um, and they found that it's uh, got relatively low amounts, but, um, but absolutely real and discernible amounts of some um, central nervous system stimulants. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of this one before, caffeine. Theobromine, I already mentioned, that was the, the compound that people used to trace residues back to the uh, ancient uh, Mayans and Aztec. And theophylline, um, these are called uh, uh, xanthine compounds. Um, you may be aware that theophylline is actually uh, of a uh, vasodilator, um, relaxes um, uh, pulmonary function, and it's uh, been used, although it's not as popular anymore, as a drug um, for patients with respiratory diseases like asthma. Chocolate also contains uh, uh, anidamide, uh, which is a compound whose chemical structure looks very much like tetrahydrocannabinol, which is an active uh, ingredient in marijuana, 
And this compound binds to the exact same receptors that THC binds to. It also contains 2-phenylethylamine. Um, this is a compound that looks very much um, like an uh, epinephrine neurotransmitter. And some people have suggested um, that these compounds uh, may have something to do with the good feelings that chocolate gives you. That's why you want to give it to people on Valentine's Day who you'd like to love you because it will put them in a good mood. Um, tryptamine uh, and tyramine um, are two other compounds that also can stimulate the release of dopamine, which is one of those feel-good neurotransmitters. Um, it's really an interesting hypothesis. A potential problem is that there's really so little of these compounds, it's, it's hard to imagine that they're providing an adequate dose to give you those wonderful feelings that people like to ascribe um, to eating chocolate. On the other hand, there really is some intriguing uh, data that there may be some synergism going on, so that even though there's relatively very small amounts here, that actually together they interact uh, with each other to give you a sum that's a total that's greater than the, the sum of its individual parts. So something uh, really may be going on with these neuroactive uh, chemicals in the brain. I hope you're not too interested in this because that's actually not what I'm going to talk about. Um, but I, I, I felt it worth a mention because you know what tomorrow is and it's what's actually on most people's mind. But I would tell you there's another function of the heart. Um, and whoops, that's the one in, in here um, where the most interesting data has been evolving. It started really only 20 years ago um, with these first observations um, that uh, cocoa beverages from these uh, Kuna Indians uh, had this very potent effect on blood pressure. So now let's start looking not at just observational studies of populations, but also at um, running specific experiments and clinical trials um, with cocoa, because there is another ingredient um, other than those um, uh, the xanthines like caffeine and uh, theophylline and the uh, neuroactive compounds like, like tryptamine, there are also a very large amount of polyphenolic antioxidants. And cocoa polyphenols, uh, polyphenols are what we sometimes call phytochemicals, phyto from plant, and they're chemicals. Um, and cocoa is very rich in these cocoa, uh, excuse me, these plant phytochemicals called flavonoids. There are only about 5,000 different flavonoids in our diet, and they are phytochemicals. They all come from fruits, from vegetables, and from whole grains. And we know those fruits and vegetables and whole grains are wonderful sources of vitamins and minerals and fiber, all this good stuff, but they are also very good sources of flavonoids and other polyphenols, and research is increasingly showing that these polyphenols also contribute with the vitamins and the minerals and the fiber to the health benefits that are associated with people who eat more plant foods. Um, there are six subclasses of flavonoids, three of which, um, and this is hard to distinguish, um, 
for anybody, but they are the flavanols, the flavanols, and the flavones that are found in chocolate. The other three that are easier to, to distinguish by sound um, are not found in chocolate. Um, this is the basic chemical structure. Um, we're not really imagine, too imaginative in coming up with names. It has three phenol rings, and so we call them polyphenols. Um, what chocolate has some um, flavonols like quercetin and some flavones like apigenin, if you're familiar at all with those compounds. But what it's really rich in are these flavanols like catechin and epicatechin. And there's a, a, another subgroup called proanthocyanidins, or some people call them PAC, PACs. Um, and all they are um, is oligomers or polymers of um, catechin and epicatechin. There are other um, oligomers of flavanols, um, but the ones that are oligomers of catechin and epicatechin are called procyanidins. So to illustrate just how much there is in uh, the chocolate bean, um, and this is percent contribution by weight. So there's really a lot. Well, here's the monomer that is catechin or epicatechin, about 10% by weight. Dimers, the two monomers linked together. Here's an example of a, a trimer. So here's that basic lavanol structure, and here's three of them hooked together. So we have trimers. And between trimers up to decamers, 10 of these um, uh, individual compounds linked together, that accounts for about 80% uh, by weight of the uh, cocoa beans. So they're really uh, uh, quite rich in these compounds. And all of the flavonoids, although they are um, referred to by all sorts of different categorizations, but they're also called dietary antioxidants. So you all know that vitamin C is an antioxidant, vitamin E is an antioxidant, beta carotene is an antioxidant. There are lots of antioxidants, including about 5,000 different flavonoids. And why do we care? Well, for the last 50 years, there's been a really intriguing uh, hypothesis, sometimes called the free radical hypothesis of aging and chronic disease. But if I can sum it up really simply, this antioxidant and health connection is to use the syllogism, uh, the major premise of which is that oxidative stress is associated with chronic disease. So through normal body metabolism, we all require oxygen. You need it, you breathe it in, um, but it is a dangerous friend because while it, it is essential, um, when it is metabolized, some of the metabolites, one to five percent generally, are broken down into highly reactive species that we call free radicals. And those free radicals can damage lipids, proteins, nucleic acids, frankly, any constituent in your cell that they happen to bump into, um, and they can cause mutations in DNA, they can break down um, cell proteins like enzymes, and they can disrupt uh, plasma membranes made up of, of lipids. Well, if oxidative stress is associated with chronic disease, um, the minor premise here is that antioxidants reduce oxidative stress. Actually, this one's a bit of a no-brainer because if they don't, then they're not antioxidants by definition. Um, and if the major and minor premise are true, then the conclusion is that antioxidants reduce chronic disease. Boy, that's simple. Um, 
the problem has been that a number of studies don't show that. Antioxidants don't prevent chronic disease. But the hypothesis isn't exactly dead yet because it's a really complicated one. Because the question is, which antioxidants, in which combinations, at what doses, and taken for how long? And anybody wanting to start a career on this, remember there are 5,000 flavonoids alone that you can start to test to answer um, those questions. But chocolate, as I've already told you, because it's so rich in these um, flavonoids, and particularly the um, fl flavanones, um, ha do have a lot of antioxidant capacity in different kinds of assays to use it. And one that you may be familiar with um, is the oxygen radical absorbance capacity assay um, that supposedly measures total antioxidant capacity. Um, I put it in quotes because there are actually um, about a dozen different assays that measure total antioxidant capacity. They don't correlate very well with one another, so we have to be careful about what they're really measuring. But within a context, within a set of a, uh, controlled experiments, it's fair to use assays like this to compare um, different uh, parts of a food or different foods. So we see here that cocoa powder has lots of antioxidant capacity in it. Um, these tests are really simple. You take a test tube, you put in a compound that generates free radicals, you put in a target um, that gets attacked, and you can measure it when it gets oxidized, then you put in whatever you want, like cocoa powder, and the better it blocks that damage from happening, the more antioxidant capacity it has. Unsweetened baking chocolate has a bit less. When you alkalize cocoa during the processing, it's called dutching, um, you lose even more of the antioxidant activity. Um, why would you want to do that? Well, first, you didn't know for, oh, the first 3,000 years or so of chocolate's history that antioxidants might have some importance. But the other is, um, I think I didn't mention that flavonoids are pretty bitter. They're pretty astringent. And if you know the difference between uh, a, a dark chocolate and a milk chocolate, you can taste that, that difference. Um, dark chocolate um, still has a fair amount of antioxidant capacity, and it's about uh, five times more than milk chocolate because um, it's further processed and, of course, diluted um, with, with milk. Um, but I, I would like to compare the total antioxidant capacity using the same assay of dark chocolate with, I'm sorry, that last one was per gram. Now I'm talking about per serving. So a serving of dark chocolate gives you about the same total antioxidant capacity as a serving of blueberries, um, more so than a serving of raspberries. Well, we, we lost a lot of antioxidant capacity here in a serving of cocoa because you actually use less cocoa. I mean, dark chocolate is much more concentrated, so there's actually more flavonoids present in a per-serving basis uh, like this. Milk chocolate has less, and interestingly enough, red grapes um, have very little. I have put in a, 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 a tracing of a high-performance liquid chromatography analysis of cocoa, tea, and apple. And this is a, a window where you see those flavonoids, and you might notice that, gee, Tea seems to have a lot of the same peaks as cocoa does. And in fact, green tea is very rich in K2, 
catechins. It's one of it's the principal flavonoids in green tea are the same things that are in dark chocolate, but chocolate has a bit more of a complex nature to it. Um, and here, in fact, are the dimers, the trimers, the quatrimers, and so on. All of these um, oligomers of the flavonoids are present. So dark chocolate, for example, will have a, uh, a much more complex array of these compounds, and importantly, a much more complex array of the metabolites of these compounds. And I say that's interesting because we now know that many of the bioactive ingredients are not necessarily what you get from the uh, plant parent compound, but rather how the body metabolizes them creates this bioactivity. But you'll see that apples and cocoa and tea are often in these battles about who has the greatest total antioxidant capacity, and clearly you want to have a food and eat food that has the highest amount of antioxidants. Except that this kind of test doesn't really tell you that. It's good for looking at the foods per se, but really important questions are, are those antioxidants bioavailable? Are they absorbed? How are they metabolized and distributed? And how are they excreted from the body? And those are much more important factors than simple assays like this one. But, and this, this is um, uh, data from a, a study I conducted with, with colleagues at Tufts and at the University of California in San Francisco. And we had people um, eating a, a low flavonoid uh, chocolate that was specially prepared for the study and one that had high levels of uh, these flavonoids. And this is the uh, plasma levels of epicatechin. That's just one of those um, flavanol molecules I've been talking about. And you can see there's about a, a tenfold increase in the blood. And this was taken um, at about two hours after the last time they ate it, after about two weeks of eating these uh, chocolate bars um, every day. It's, you know, somebody has to volunteer for these studies, you know. Um, I would tell you in, in other studies we've done, um, and, and this has been confirmed now in many laboratories, flavonoids are actually pretty rapidly absorbed. In a couple hours you'll see peaks in the blood, and then in a few more hours they're mostly gone. But what we're starting to learn is that doesn't mean they're gone from the body. They've been distributed to tissues other than the blood. That's where they're having um, their real impact. So these antioxidants from chocolate are absorbed into the blood. Um, but do they actually have an antioxidant effect in the body? Now we're starting to get a little more serious about looking at their bioactivity. Um, um, this particular um, study um, was a randomized clinical trial, uh, a crossover. So they, people were on one treatment, in this case on the top graph, a standard American diet, and on the other one, a high chocolate diet, dark chocolate and cocoa together, um, providing 466 milligrams of flavanols. Um, and what they found is that um, feeding the chocolate um, increased the resistance of bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, to oxidation. That's pretty interesting because it is the oxidative modification of LDL cholesterol it's really the first step in the atherogenic process to heart disease. But it only increased that resistance about 10%, kind of modest. The other thing it did um, is it increased the serum ORAC levels. That total antioxidant capacity of the serum went up too, went up about 6%, a modest amount. And there was a nice correlation 
between these two measures of antioxidant activity in vivo in the body. This study was another randomized crossover trial. People either got a high or a low flavanol beverage, in this case 14 versus 187 milligrams, and then they got a big breakfast with or without the chocolate. And if you eat a big meal, you actually increase the production of some of those free radicals for a bit. And that was measured by a product of lipid peroxidation. I told you that lipids get oxidized by free radicals, and F2 isoprostanes are such a product. And they went up in the low flavanol group, and they really didn't change. So six hours after that breakfast, and they said there's another way to generate free radicals, and that's to exercise pretty intensively, in this case on a bicycle ergometer, because exercise produces free radicals. But exercise is good for you. You can't use that as an excuse for all sorts of reasons, but among other things, when you exercise, your body increases the level of antioxidant enzymes to protect against the free radicals induced by exercise. But when they exercised with the low flavanol beverage, free radicals went up, lipid peroxidation went up, and with the chocolate, stayed flat. So eating chocolate actually increases the antioxidant activity or capacity in your blood, which is where these samples were taken from. I'd like to describe another study. This is just the illustration that I had done with colleagues in Italy. We did a randomized crossover study, and we had people avoid all chocolate for a week, and then be randomized either to receive 100 grams of dark chocolate for 15 days, or 90 grams of white chocolate. Maybe I didn't mention when I talked about combining cocoa butter with cocoa liquor, sugar and milk to make chocolate, if you leave out the cocoa and you just use the butter, that's white chocolate. So there are no flavanols in white chocolate. It's really not chocolate at all. And then they go through here another cocoa phase period, cocoa-free phase period, that's the washout, and then we switch them. So people who had the dark chocolate get the white chocolate, and vice versa. And this study was done in people with essential hypertension. They had clear high blood pressure, but no other organic reason for it. And as you can see, in the dark chocolate group, there was about a 10 millimeter mercury decline in systolic blood pressure, systolic is that high number, and a 6 millimeter decline in, 6 millimeter mercury decline in diastolic blood pressure. These people, they were taking their meds, they were doing everything right, although we did ask them if they were going to eat 100 grams of dark chocolate each day, almost 500 calories worth. They had to cut out all the other snack foods and desserts because we didn't want them gaining weight. So this was very effective, and white chocolate, as you can see, had no significant effect on blood pressure whatsoever. So what the Kuna Indians seem to have known for 500 or 1,000 years or more, we were able to confirm in people with hypertension. We actually had an anti-hypertensive effect simply by feeding dark chocolate. More recently, a group in Germany 
um, did a very similar study. They also looked in hypertensive subjects, um, although they did a parallel randomized controlled trial that is half the people were given dark chocolate and half the people were given white chocolate. So there was no, no crossover. And what this study shows is that the higher their blood pressure was, the greater was the blood pressure lowering from this intervention. Um, and here they found we got about a, uh, a 10 millimeter decrease, 10 millimeter mercury decrease in systolic blood pressure in the study uh, we had done. Um, this group got um, about a, a four to five millimeter decrease, also uh, um, a, a, modest, a modest decline in diastolic blood pressure. White chocolate had no difference. Well, we got a bigger effect in 500 grams, uh, I'm sorry, 100 grams of chocolate. Um, but this study, which went for 18 weeks instead of two, only used 6.3 grams, only 30 calories, so just a little bit of chocolate. But it takes longer to have its effect. This is the data from 18 weeks. Um, so we see a dose-response relationship. Um, they both lower blood pressure. You get a bigger change with more uh, intake, especially over a shorter time. So this confirmed our study and really extended it. In fact, these investigators were so thrilled with the, the results. They said on a population basis, a three millimeter mercury reduction in systolic blood pressure would reduce the relative risk of stroke mortality by 8%, coronary artery disease mortality by 5%, and all-cause mortality, uh, dying of anything, uh, by 4%. That's really pretty amazing. Um, but there is this public health concept. If you just imagine any particular um, physiologic function having a nice bell-shaped curve, what we know from public health interventions, if you can just shift that whole population over, in this case, a little to the, to the left, to a lower blood pressure, you actually can have an enormous public health impact. You're not taking the highest risk people and making big reductions. You're taking the whole population, making small reductions and having a big impact and they said that adoption of small amounts of flavanol-rich cocoa into the habitual diet is a modification that is easy to adhere to. They, they actually didn't test that, but I'll bet they're right. Um, and it may be a promising behavioral approach to lower blood pressure in individuals with above optimal blood pressure. You have high blood pressure, maybe in addition to cutting back on salt, um, eating more fruits and vegetables, whole grains and fiber, Adding a little bit of dark chocolate is not only um, an indulgent treat, but it may help improve compliance and have a bioactive therapeutic effect as well, if you have high blood pressure. But what if you don't have high blood pressure and you still think it might be nice to lower it? In another study that I had done, um, we looked at healthy adults and we did a different kind of a blood pressure measurement here. We put telemetry devices um, on our subjects and measured their blood pressure morning, noon, and night. Um, and then in this slide, we just averaged it out. And you can see we got about a, a six millimeter decrease. This is the same doses we used before, uh, 100 grams a day. Um, six millimeter, millimeter mercury reduction in systolic blood pressure, about um, four uh, millimeters in the diastolic. Um, white chocolate, we had no effect. I do have to tell you that Within group, the, different, the, the difference in blood pressure after the choc dark chocolate than before was statistically significant. But it wasn't significant 
compared to the white chocolate group, because we had a lot of variability, we'd have to have done a much bigger study, I think, to have the, the two-group difference um, be significant. Um, however, um, in addition to having to live on the San Blas Islands and being uh, a Kuna Indian, it turns out that if you live in the Netherlands, particularly in, in Zutphen, where there's been a, a long um, observation of elderly um, in that city, they created a chocolate food frequency questionnaire. They had over 21 different items of chocolate, from candy bars to cocoa beverages to nutritional supplements that are flavored with cocoa. Um, so they got a pretty good uh, measurement, and they divided this population of, uh, of older adults, uh, almost 500 people, into the lowest fertile, the lowest third, the middle third, and the highest third. These are non-chocolate eaters. Uh, the middle were consuming about a gram a day, and the higher uh, intakes were about four grams a day. Um, and you can see that there was, once again, a four millimeter uh, a reduction in systolic blood pressure, about a two millimeter reduction um, in diastolic blood pressure, which, gee, that actually looks not too much different than uh, what we found um, in the other studies um, of the clinical trials. So now the observational data of whole population groups matches the clinical trial data, and it even matches the observations of the Kuna Indians. So it's pretty clear that cocoa can have this effect, this benefit um, on blood pressure. But I did tell you that some of the antioxidant measurements um, that I described before were modest. And these effects are not, on blood pressure, aren't hugely dramatic, but they are much more than modest. Is something else going on? Is cocoa a great antioxidant? It does have antioxidant capacity, but is that the principal, principal mechanism of action to explain this apparent health benefit? Well, there have been a, a number of studies, including um, the award of a Nobel Prize, um, to understanding that nitric oxide, um, which is a gas um, that is synthesized from the amino acid arginine, um, is a very potent transmitter of signals to blood vessels and actually to other tissues as well. It is a neurotransmitter. And it turns out that flavanols, like catechin and epicatechin here, induce the genes that upregulate um, inducible nitric oxide synthase. So we now know that these compounds, these flavanols, um, upregulate the enzyme that makes more nitric oxide. So we now have more nitric oxide, but they are also antioxidants. And one of the, the kind of downsides to lots of nitric oxide, which is good, is that when it is oxidized, it is oxidized to nitrogen-free radicals, like peroxynitrate which actually is very damaging. But the antioxidant part of those flavanols reduce the amount of free radical production. They quench those free radicals, which we know lead to dysfunction of the endothelial cells. Those are the cells that line um, blood vessels. And they allow nitric oxide to do its work, like decreasing the proliferation of smooth muscle cells that surround the blood vessels. They have an uh, antithrombotic effect. They can reduce um, uh, blood clots. Um, they also make the smooth muscles around the blood vessels relax, um, and as a result, 
um, cause some vasodilation. Well, is that how chocolate is having some of its effects? Well, one thing that is um, not too difficult to do is a non-invasive measure of nitric oxide-mediated vascular function. Um, one thing, if you really want to see if your blood vessels dilate, is to put a blood pressure cuff on really tight for five minutes, and then let it go. And if you are normal and healthy, um, your blood vessels dilate and lots of blood flows through. We call that hyperemia. And if it doesn't, if your blood vessels don't dilate very well and you don't get a hyperemic response, we know that you're at high risk for coronary artery disease. You can have a heart attack. You're at high risk. And in fact, if you take patients with coronary artery disease, they already have a very poor flow-mediated dilation response. And so um, you use ultrasound probes, um, and when the blood pressure cuff comes off, you measure the diameter of the blood vessel, and you measure how rapidly the blood flows through it. So let's give some people a low flavonoid um, and a high cocoa flavanol beverage. Um, talking about 900 milligrams versus 37 milligrams of cocoa flavanols. And one thing we see, which we already knew, um, the, the amount of flavanols in the plasma, in the serum here, go up. They peak at about two to three hours. Six hours later, they're gone. But this is really wonderful because, gee, we also see um, nitric oxide increasing in about the, exactly the same time course in the high-dose group, but not in the low-dose group. And here is the measure of flow-mediated dilation, the percent that your blood vessels dilate upon this challenge, no effect in the low flavanol group. And at two hours, gee, the same time that you get all that nitric oxide, the same time that you have all those flavanols present, um, they all peak, they all go down together. This kind of close relationship between bioavailability and distribution, between the production of a biochemical mediator um, and the time course of a physiologic function um, is very convincing data. I wish all my experiments worked out like that. Um, I mentioned that nitric oxide can also have an effect on thrombosis, that is blood clotting. Blood clotting, clotting happens when platelets um, in blood start to um, adhere together. Um, and this is a study um, where young men were washed out, no chocolate for a day, overnight fast, and then they were fed um, either a 74% dark chocolate um, or a, um, a white chocolate. And you can see that there was about a 35% a reduction in the ability of platelets to adhere to one another. And among other things, if you have a lot of platelet adhesion, this group is smokers. Smokers have high platelet adhesion. Um, that's a big risk factor for having a stroke. Um, one of the earlier studies that I, I had done with, with colleagues um, where we were looking at blood pressure, um, we included an oral glucose tolerance test. Um, it's actually not so fun as it sounds. You drink a glass of sugar water, of glucose, um, and then you follow um, for a, a couple hours um, the amount of insulin and glucose in the plasma. And as you guess, you drink the, the glucose, blood glucose goes up, blood insulin goes up. 
uh, and this is what you see. When we did a randomized crossover trial, um, we found that those that were on a diet with the um, dark chocolate instead of white chocolate had a much lower elevation of glucose and a much lower elevation of insulin. Actually, I just exaggerated. It wasn't that much lower. It was statistically significant lower. These were healthy people. They weren't diabetes. They didn't have diabetes. They weren't pre-diabetic. But it was a statistically significant effect. And so we wondered if we took people who were at high risk for diabetes, that is, um, people, these were also hypertensive subjects, um, who have impaired um, glucose tolerance or glucose intolerant patients, and we looked at insulin sensitivity using a number of different kinds of measures. Um, and this is uh, the zero day and the 15 day after um, the chocolate treatment. And you can see um, this measure of insulin sensitivity went up. This is the measure of insulin resistance. It went down. And uh, what we call a corrected insulin response went up. So in addition to lowering blood pressure, through mechanisms we're not quite sure of, but they may be mediated by nitric oxide, we're also having this improvement in insulin sensitivity, and current research now is showing that there's a close relationship um, between inflammatory processes, oxidative stress, and um, insulin sensitivity um, that all tend to cluster together and lead to the risk of heart disease or diabetes, and what diabetics die of is heart disease. Um, much more recently, and with, to me, very intriguing data, but I don't want to overstate it. It's what I would call preliminary data, published, but preliminary. Um, this idea of cocoa making blood vessels dilate, that's great for the heart, get more blood flow, reduce your risk for heart disease. Um, what about cerebral circulation? Do these cocoa flavanols also get into the brain? And this is a study done with functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, fMRI, um, that measures the amount of blood flow. Um, and um, this is a low-dose um, cocoa beverage that nothing much happened over six hours. Um, and this just in four healthy, young subjects. Well, two hours later, it gets to the brain. It's about the same amount of time as it gets to other parts of the, the body. Um, we see um, almost a 50% increase in cerebral circulation. Oh, that's terrific. Now I can think much better and much faster. I would tell you this study did some cognitive testing, and they did not find any really impressive changes. Um, on the other hand, if you look at really young, healthy people who are already functioning pretty much at max, you might not expect to see an improvement. Now, what about older people? Well, we actually know from observational studies that older people with higher intakes of flavonoids, those that would be in that top tertile or quintile of the population of total flavonoids, we have data on that, um, actually have a lower risk for age-related dementias like Alzheimer's disease and also vascular dementias. I'm not saying that's, that's not been demonstrated for chocolate consumption, but rather total flavonoid um, consumption. Um, so what about older people? Well, actually, there is a study. This is a different approach. This is using a transcranial Doppler ultrasound measure to look at blood flow. And this is um, what they call representative data. 
That is, this is from one subject, but they've run, this group has run a number of subjects, um, and the other data looks similar. This is 900 milligrams of flavanols uh, daily for a week. That's similar to the, uh, some of the higher doses I showed you in the other experiments. And this is the pre-cocoa beverage um, blood flow, and this is the post-middle cerebral artery blood flow in a 76-year-old man. It's about an 18% increase in blood flow. That's really intriguing. We don't have data on cognitive function outcomes. We don't have data on um, possible results on chronic diseases. Um, but I think that's pretty exciting um, and sort of where things are going with more and more randomized clinical trials, more and more basic research being done to understand how flavanols and other flavonoids are absorbed and distributed, metabolized to these um, active compounds um, that even seem to get to the brain and have a physiologic response. So let me conclude by actually using a kind of an old quote from John Milton, if, if you remember reading Paradise Lost in high school or college. Um, but about 400 years ago, he wrote, Accuse not nature. She has done her part. After all, not only did we get blueberries and broccoli and those are almonds. But Mother Nature gave us Theobroma cacao. She gave us the food of the gods rich in these flavonoids. So as you think about improving your diet, as you even think about celebrating Valentine's Day tomorrow by eating lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grain, <laughs> let me tell you that you can as well have some Chocolate. I happen to recommend dark chocolate, and you'll have some tastings that may demonstrate why. Um, but that dark chocolate, those flavanols, those cocoa beverages um, seem to be able to contribute to promoting heart health, maybe cerebral health. I don't know if that's a word or term, but um, and and research is ongoing. But it is to me, as a nutrition scientist, and a really young one at that. To, to recognize that we are talking about a body of evidence that I have just whizzed through that's really been developed in the last 20 years. That's because we now have the technologies um, to do brain scans with fMRIs. We have the mass spectrometers to be able to identify these uh, compounds, these flavanols and their metabolites in trace quantities and really advance what we know so that ultimately, do thou but thine. Thank you very much. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org. 